My mission is to empower you, whether you're an actor, comedian, or filmmaker, to go after your creative dreams and do what you love. I believe your voice, your spark of passion matters, and your desire to create work on screen is so valuable. Life's too short to not do the thing you love. That's why I created Spark to Screen. Spark to Screen is about how to transform your spark of passion for film, acting, or comedy into successfully creating work your friends, family, or millions can watch on screen. It's about fulfilling your creative dreams and allowing yourself to believe that you are enough. As a mental health therapist, comedian, and actor, I'll share my experience of overcoming limiting beliefs to help empower you to overcome yours because I know you are enough because we all are. We'll also be interviewing people who have experienced success reaching the next level of their entertainment careers. Want to make a movie but don't know how? Want to be on SNL but nervous to take an improv class? How about make a successful YouTube channel? This podcast is for you. I want to help you believe in your dreams and act in alignment with them because it's all possible. Every week, we're going to be talking to people who have experienced success in the entertainment industry to help mine their experience for nuggets of gold to apply to our own lives. I'm going to share the ups and downs of my creative journey, give you that sweet, sweet therapist perspective to help your goals feel healthy and achievable, and top it off with some lighthearted lols. Yes, L-O-L-Z. My name is Emma Bridges. I'm so excited you're here. Today, I'm so excited to introduce Michael Malamadoff. I am so excited that he joined me for the podcast today. He directed one of my favorite documentaries, The Problem with Apu, along with a number of other amazing projects that he's worked on. He's also an executive producer and a member of the production company Cowboy Bear Ninja. And as I interview him today, is showcasing his Emmy in the background of his office, which is so badass. So I couldn't be more excited to talk with him today. So welcome to the pod, Michael. Hello, I am super excited to have you today, Michael Malamadoff. Um, I have really enjoyed watching some of your work and I'm just really grateful that you're here. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for this invitation. Yeah, so I would love to just kind of start off, like usually I ask a bit about um, like your filmmaking journey and then... Um, we'll kind of come back to some more present stuff, but usually that's where I like to start. Like, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into filmmaking and um, what brought you to where you are today? Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, I, I always had an interest in film. Um, I, I, I'm a first generation American, which is a really, I think, important piece of my storytelling journey. Um, you know, and, and like a lot of first generation Americans, uh, you know, my parents were out here hustling and on their grind um, when I was a little kid, which is to say that I spent a lot of time in front of the TV, you know, screen time rules were not as uh, strict back in the day. Um, but I grew up watching a lot of television um, and quickly uh, fell in love with, with the world of, of television um, and by extension movies. Um, and, you know, uh, a therapist would probably really quickly make the connection of a kid who spends all of his time uh, watching the television, conversely wanting to be watched more. Um, and I think I think I made that connection. You know, I made this connection that like 
an incredible way of getting attention, of, of getting focus on yourself, uh, was, um, was being on the screen. Um, and so very early on, I cultivated this interest. Uh, I, I remember, um, you know, we, we used to go to this video rental store, you know, pre-Blockbuster, this, this local video rental store with my father every Saturday. And I convinced him once when I was like five or six uh, to buy me a giant Leonard Maltin guide to the movies. Um, you know, just a, a, an encyclopedic tome of like every movie made between probably, you know, 1917 and 1985. And I read it end to end countless times to the point where I carried the book around so much that it started to, the binding started to wear off and the pages would fall out in clumps but not before I'd memorized the book. Um, and I made it very clear to my parents that this is what I wanted to do, you know, six years old, that I wanted to actually uh, work in this industry. Um, and uh, it's funny when we were 1987, uh, we're eight years old, my parents were sort of finally established themselves, you know, in this country financially. And remember we took a big trip to Los Angeles, uh, family trip. And, uh, we go and we stay at um, the Los Angeles Hilton, which to, to my mind was like a really big deal. You know, the Hilton was the kind of hotel that like they gave away on prize packages on Hollywood squares and Wheel of Fortune, you know? So I thought we were staying somewhere really fancy. And my father knew that I wanted to work in film specifically at the time that I wanted to be an actor. Um, and, you know, my parents are both doctors. Uh, I don't think anybody emigrates to this country um, with the goal of creating a better life for their child so that they can go and pursue uh, a really difficult career in the arts that is financially unstable, um, you know. And my father sat me down our first night in LA and the hotel had, you know, a magazine available for guests, you know, it was, it was there in the room. And it had an end page article, you know, a, a one page op-ed, uh, like so many magazines do. And this particular end page article uh, was one that spoke about how the ratio of working actors in Hollywood to working waiters um, was an unfortunate ratio that most people who sought out the Hollywood dream of being actors uh, did not make it. Um, and you can imagine how that registered for an eight-year-old, uh, this, this message that you're probably not going to succeed in this. Uh, and my instinct was, well, if you don't think that I'm good enough to be on the screen, then maybe I'll be good enough to make these things. Um, and so my story took an unexpected turn in that um, my father, rather than dissuading me uh, from pursuing a career in the arts, sort of just changed my path. There was a pivot there. And I became increasingly obsessed with making movies, with making TV, not just acting in them. Um, wow. And set my eyes on NYU, started to do research at a very young age, discovered <laughs> that NYU was one of the best film programs in the country and worked towards that um, much to my parents' chagrin. Although what I will also say about my parents is that to their credit, when the time came to do college applications, they were supportive. And, and although they have been scared at numerous times in my professional journey for me um, and, and been scared about what my decisions would mean for me financially, for my ability to raise a family. Um, they never, they never um, told me not to do it, you know, not to pursue it wholeheartedly. So I did get into NYU. Um, I uh, made a really great cluster of friends and collaborators. Uh, along the way, I had also done a lot of uh, film study, uh, had gone to a performing arts high school, uh, which also sort of rounded out my 
my education knowledge, not just in film, but uh, growing up in the New York metro area uh, and going to an arts high school also just exposed me to the wider arts. I was 14, 15, 16 years old and not just investing in film, but learning about improv, going to modern dance performances, regularly attending the theater, doing professional workshops with working artists, which showed me that there was a path. Uh, and, you know, I would end up going through a really successful four years of film school and meeting a lot of the collaborators that I work with now, you know, I now I'm a co-owner in a production company here in New York. Uh, three of my four business partners um, were friends that I made my freshman year at NYU, uh, mm -hmm. friends who I ultimately was roommates with, uh, stayed, you know, collaborators with and, and now run and own a company with, which is really satisfying and exciting. But the journey between college and that company was a tricky one. I, I, I wore a lot of hats in, in the 16 years between uh, graduation and starting to run uh, the television department of a successful production company. Um, I spent mm -hmm. six years working at a bi-coastal talent agency uh, with models and actors. Uh, I spent two years working at New York's public theater, uh, raising money for endeavors like Shakespeare in the Park. Uh, I spent a number of years in the trenches of indie film, uh, writing and producing and directing micro-budget indie features, uh, including um, uh, Laverne Cox's first leading role in a feature film called The Exhibitionist, which uh, I made back in 2011, uh, as well as a Bobby Cannavale and June Rayfield feature called Weakness uh, that came out in 2009. And, you know, it took me nine years from graduating film school to go in, out into the world and actually get to make my first feature film. Um, and it's a film that took years to get off the ground. I started writing the screenplay for Weakness when I was 23. It took me years after that to raise the financing um, and bring together a cast to star in the film. And I made a pretty good first film. I'm not going to tell you that I made a great first film. I made, an, uh, I made a good first film and I made a lot of uh, first time filmmaker mistakes along the way, uh, you know, including being too married to my own words and my own work, uh, not being clear on when to push my vision and alternately when to listen more closely to collaborators, all the things that you kind of have to learn and, and, and you know, I made a lot of humbling mistakes, but the biggest mistake that I think I made was not really investing and investigating the sales and the distribution process of films. Uh, I knew how to make things. I knew how to make pretty pictures. I knew how to direct actors. I knew how to write a compelling scene, uh, but I had no idea once you made the thing, how you actually got it in front of buyers. And so I suffered the experience that a lot of filmmakers uh, suffered uh, and continue to suffer from on the independent circuit, which is I made a thing, it was pretty good. It went through the festival circuit. It got picked up by a sales company. And then when it came time for distribution of the film, it sort of died on the vine. It had a very, very, very short life um, on digital video. The movie was released in the early days of video on demand. You know, we now live in an era where we're super accustomed to watching movies vis-a-vis uh, -vis streaming on platforms like Netflix and Amazon. But, you know, this movie came out in 2010 where people were just sort of adjusting to the idea of not watching things on hard DVDs, of uh, buying movies off of iTunes for $4.99. Um, and that was a really tricky thing to convince people to do if your movie hadn't had a major theatrical release and there wasn't a groundswell of marketing underneath the film. And, and my film had neither of those things. And so I had this experience of you know being 30, of having spent the first 30 years of my life working towards this goal, this thing that I thought was going to be transformative, which was making a first feature film. And then I did and flopped. 
and you can imagine that um, there there comes a kind of identity crisis with that. You know, um, you have this moment of flashing back to the L.A. Hilton uh, in 1987 and thinking, oh, oh, that ratio, and maybe oh. and maybe my father was right. Uh, mm. And so, you know, it was very painful. Uh, I retreated for six months uh, into my dark New York apartment and licked my wounds, and I thankfully mm. had a partner who was very loving and supportive um, and sort of let me lick my wounds quietly. Uh, and then I thought, well, I did this and it didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. And how do I do it differently? I'm not going to let this be the end of this journey. And so, you know, as I mentioned, I came into the industry at a time of great transition and change with the emergence of VOD. But I, I also came into the industry at a time when filmmaking as a whole was becoming more democratic. You know, platforms like Vimeo and YouTube were on the rise. And so was the ability to have editing equipment like Final Cut loaded on your home laptop. So was the ability to buy, you know, a DSLR, you know, uh, camera for $600 that took really high quality uh, digital video imagery that was almost filmic. And rather than say, well, this is the end of my trip, I started um, making really short, short films, mostly documentaries um, on subjects that were of interest to me to just figure out a different way into the process. Um, and I made seven of these short music docs called that I called the mixtapes that focused on the relationship between unsigned musical artists, independent musicians in New York, and what compelled them to keep making music, even as they were failing to find audience bases or a major record label contract. And in the process, also talk to them about their interests and, and the artists that influenced and inspired them as they were on their journeys. It was obviously a very personal piece. It was obviously a piece that was about me figuring out where I was in my own journey as a filmmaker. But it was also a production process that showed me that I was actually quite good at documentary filmmaking, which is a space that I'd never thought to take up before. And those seven pieces led to a opportunity to make a paid documentary um, you know, I was commissioned to make a documentary film about the artist Victor Victory, a 70-year-old Korean emigre at the time who had come to America in the 1970s um, and was a talented, a really gifted artist who had largely made his living um, as a commercial artist, doing a lot of uh, mall portraits, you know, uh, you know, out of New Jersey had been part of the group art scene in the 1970s that had spawned Thomas Kincaid. So, um, you know, basically outsider folk art. And it was a story about how Victor, now edging into retirement, um, was trying to break his artwork into the world of fine art uh, with the help of his 25-year-old Korean emigre son, uh, Korean-American son, uh, Ed, you know. And um, it was the story of how Ed was trying to convince American audiences um, and, and global audiences really to think differently about his father's artwork and what were the challenges between crossing the line from low art to high art? What were the challenges for outside artists to gain recognition? Again, in unexpected ways, it was a deeply personal story, but this documentary ultimately made its hands in, made its way into the hands of uh, Michelle Armour. Uh, Michelle is a established um, and, and beloved television producer who had worked on seminal works like Strangers with Candy and the Upright Citizens Brigade television show that launched Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and most famously Chappelle's show. Um, and wow. she at the time was working with the comedian Hari Kondabalu to transform a short five minute monologue that he had done on Kamau Bell's show Totally Biased about the problem with Apu into a feature length documentary. 
uh, and Michelle saw my documentary and said, maybe, maybe the guy who directed Victory um, should meet with Hari. Um, and she took this real chance on me, um, to which I'm going to be forever grateful for. Um, but, you know, I met with Hari. I ultimately met with the executives at True TV who were producing the documentary, Leslie Goldman, who has gone on to become a real mentor for me. Um, and got sort of plucked out of nowhere to take on this massive television documentary. And as this was happening, I was also starting to engage in conversations with my now partners at Cowboy Bear Ninja, these, these really good friends of mine from college that I mentioned earlier, who had in 2011, while I was figuring out how to make and distribute and market indie films, um, they had started a boutique production company specifically focused on digital advertising. Uh, they had re realized that the internet was going to transform advertising, that really big brands were going to ultimately migrate their work online where the most eyeballs were, and that they were going to want to make really terrific broadcast scale commercial work, um, but on digital budgets. And what my partners brought to the table was an ability to really oversee every piece of the production process from ideation and scripting through directing and producing and shooting all the way through technical finishing processes like color correction and sound design. And because of that, they were able to set up a really nimble production house that immediately went to work for places like the Washington Post and Greenpeace and now Fortune 500 companies like Intel and Playtex and Samsung. Uh, but you know, around the time that I was signing up to do the prom with Apu, I went to, to my old friends and I said, look, it's incredible that you guys make this work, um, that you tell stories that are really important in the branded space, but don't you wanna just be telling stories for yourself? Maybe some of the relationships that I've cultivated over the years, um, working at places like the public theater and at a large talent agency and as an independent filmmaker can be of value to you. And I pitched them on the idea of bringing me in as a consultant to help them start creative development. And it just sort of all timed out that Oh, perfect storm. I, I you know, I, I boarded the Apu doc. We all sold a television series together uh, called Liquid Science that was created by one of my business partners, Adrian Selkowitz. Really fascinating uh, science series starring Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan that sort of melded the worlds of next generation technology and hip hop in really innovative and creative ways. And all of a sudden I went from this career where I had spent really 16 years scraping along, just trying to make ends meet and trying to figure out how to make the next thing to having a uh, platform to start developing and pitching television at a really high level. The success of Liquid Science allowed me to sign at a major agency along with my partners. Um, the, the support of a company like Cowboy Bear Ninja gave me a safety net to take really big creative risks in terms of the work that we we're going to be developing. And I convinced my partners to really back me in developing a creative slate that was centered around marginalized voices, that was centered around the kinds of stories that I, as a first-generation American and as an Hispanic American, felt like I wasn't seeing enough of. Um, you know, whether that was talking about systemic racism through the lens of um, the impact of Apu on the South Asian community in America, whether that was uh, creating a comedy game show, uh, you know, that I developed with Michael Torpy, paid off that looked at the student loan crisis in America, uh, a loan crisis that impacts approximately 45 million Americans, uh, carrying an average of $37,000 in debt, a crisis that disproportionately impacts young people, young women, and young Black women, um, and series like our Emmy-winning uh, television show, Black Women on the Conversation, which we produced for the Oprah Winfrey Network in 2019. Um, we continue to emphasize these kinds of marginalized stories as we look to figure out what we want to take on next. And part of what I'm excited about is that 
a big part of what we're taking on next is is now scripted content and half hour uh, scripted comedies that also address the social justice issues that we hold near and dear. And so I've monologued for a long time and this is a great place to sort of bring us back to the present and open it up for questions, I think. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. I so many, I mean, first of all, I'm just so struck. Um, you know, what I didn't know before now was that you're a first generation American. So, I mean, I think exactly what you spoke to is so incredible that you have persisted in the arts. Um, you know, with, with two doctors as parents, I think that's no small feat. That's so impressive. And something that I see in your work and hear you describe that you don't sacrifice is this emphasis on social justice, even if it's a game show, right? But like making it, <laughs> making it like tell marginalized stories. And you also, you work with amazing people. Like you have, um, like the people that you had in like the problem with Apu, for example, were some amazing comedians. And I, I'm just, um, I love the stories that you're highlighting there. It's so amazing. You know, I, I've been the beneficiary of a lot of tremendous relationships. You know, I, I can't take credit for the talent, the wealth of talent that appeared in the problem with Apu. That really, um, that, that is me being the beneficiary of Hari's hard-won relationships, of Michelle Armour's hard-won relationships, of True TV's hard-won relationships. Um, Avalon TV, who manages Hari, was also really helpful in lining up some of our most significant guests in that documentary as well. So, and that's really been the story of my career throughout. You know, um, I was introduced to Michael Torpy, who's a wonderful creative partner. Um, and, and a really brilliant television creator uh, through um, a friend of mine named Ken Lee, who is an incredible television manager and producer in our business, represents people like uh, Michael, represents people like Rachel Brosnahan, um, represents people like Rafael Casal, uh, really, you know, artists who are changing the narrative through their work um, and through their own efforts at representation. Um, and Ken and I, you know, met as 21 year olds in the mailroom of a talent agency and just became great friends. And, and I'm fortunate that Ken and I not only became friends, but Ken is a person who has consistently throughout my career encouraged me to never give up because always thought of opportunities um, that could be special for me and has stood by my side. Uh, I think this gets lost a lot. You know, we have this culture that is really focused on wonderkins, on auteurs, on people succeeding early and often. Um, but the reality is, is that there, there's no success that comes without failure, um, that we're all due for failure at some point in our careers, whether we meet it, you know, early or often or late, um, we're all bound to stumble at some point. And uh, it's because of that, that it's really, really important that we build up supportive networks of people who love us um, and who are there to protect us. And, and that can be collaborators, that can be running a company with three of your best friends from college, that can be finding the right partner. You know, I, I have a partner who I, I mentioned before has just made so many sacrifices at every step of my journey and uh, has been wonderful. It can be having parents who have their doubts, but know how to keep those doubts in check um, and still love you and tell you that they're going to support you. I, I am the beneficiary of a tremendous amount of love. Um, and you can't be an artist, I think, without the love and support of other people and without money, by the way, um, and without an audience. These are the three things that every artist needs. You've got to figure out how to 
cultivate an audience and, and how to tell stories, not just for yourself, but for your audience. You've got to figure out how to have the support of people who are going to be true to you, no matter where you are in your career, because I'm just as likely to stumble again in a year or two years as I was 10 years ago. And that's part of the process. Um, and, and ultimately, you need to be able to go home to people that allow you to put your work away and to the side and regenerate and refresh. I think that's that's a really great point, having the support and having people around that are going to help buoy you. So I want to ask... So when you were younger, you wanted to be an actor. Yes. You wanted to be an actor. Um, and I love, I love what you highlighted, which is like, you know, your parents were working really hard. So you spent a lot of time with the TV. And then it kind of became this, this symbol almost of a way to get like connection or attention, right? Yeah. Um, but looking at it now, it's, it seems like the stories that you tell, you know, kind of uh, supersede that. And I'm really interested in that idea um, in, in that it's, it serves a purpose, like you're advancing a social justice issue, for example, um, rather than I think there's a, mis a misconception that a lot of people are still just like, just want attention. Like, that's why you want to tell stories, for example. Um, would you say that that has sort of shifted for you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I mentioned just now the importance of cultivating an audience. And I think it's really important to understand that art really is about making connection. And I think, um, it's oftentimes easy as the artist to think, well, the thing that I have to say is important. Um, rather than thinking, what do people need to hear? How do they need to hear it? Um, what would make them want to spend time hearing this? When I start on a new project, I think about two things a lot. And I think I've mentioned this to you in the past. And the first thing I ask is like, really, what does this work care about saying? And then the second thing I ask myself is, what is the promise that the work makes to an audience? You know, this is something that came to me, one of my partners at Cowboy, uh, Miguel Drake McLaughlin, who's a really gifted filmmaker in his own right, um, posed this question to me early in a development process that we were undertaking together. And it has stuck with me. It has been something that I've kept with me ever since because that question of the promise to the audience is, is just so important. Um, I'm somebody who loves a wide, a wide range of disciplines when it comes to the arts. I love music. And I think a lot about pop music, you know, the idea that the best pop songs, um, a, a singer, a performer delivers a tremendously heartfelt and important message through their music. It goes through a commercial production process. It gets beamed out hopefully to millions of listeners and then each individual listener is supposed to have a deeply personal connection to the song. Think about the relationship we make to songs that we love, to musicians that we love, the way that we feel that those songs, those musicians are ours. And when you think about all of the steps that has to happen between somebody first sitting down with a pen and paper or a guitar or a keyboard to write a song, to write those great lyrics, to come up with that great melody, to putting that through the process of production, sitting in a studio with other musicians who have their points of view, with producers who are going to alter and change and hopefully build upon the sounds that you're creating, to going through a distribution process across radio, streaming, 
however your music is being delivered to you, you know, at this moment in 2021, maybe you still invest in vinyl. And then at the end of that huge delivery process, you sit alone with a song and you either, it either resonates with you or it doesn't. But if it resonates with you, something incredible has happened. You've played this incredible game of telephone um, with your feelings and somebody else has received those feelings and feels them back to you. Um, and that's what all of making art is, which is to say, at every step of the process, you have to check in with other people about their feelings about what you're doing. You have to check in with the collaborators that are gonna make the work with you. You have to check in with the sales and distribution agents who are going to get your work out into the world about how they feel about it. And most importantly, you have to check in with an audience that's gonna valorize and evangelize for your work. And so to get from here to there, I think you have to think about both the beginning and the ends of those processes to figure out how to handle everything in the middle. And, and that's what we do. We think a lot about what's this promise? How is an audience going to receive this? What are they going to feel watching this, hearing this, seeing this? Why would they come back and watch this again? Because if they don't want to come back and watch it again, if they don't want to watch more episodes, if they don't like the way that this makes them feel, they're certainly not going to think about what I'm trying to tell them. And great TV and great art in general starts with what it makes you feel before it asks you what you think about it. Mm. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> okay so I want to ask like today um what are you most excited about and what are your challenges at this stage in your career um I am I'm very excited about the opportunity right now to reinvest in the stories we care about the most you know I think there was a feeling towards the end of our last presidency, um, that audiences were fatigued from the news cycle, were fatigued from the constant tweets of our last president, um, and were fatigued from being enmeshed in a, in a constant culture war. And that made it really hard to sell content um, that was built around the messaging that I value the most. And so I feel that there's a renewed opportunity right now to dive into progressive stories and storytelling. I'm excited about the opportunity to do it in new funny ways. As I mentioned before, you know, we've, we've just sold our first scripted half hour comedy to HBO Max. It's in development there now. Uh, I'm working with wonderful partners, Jerome Milligan and Shatane Bowen of the sketch comedy team, uh, Astronomy Club. Uh, they're wonderful creative partners. We're developing a really incredible detective comedy. Uh, it's, going to be a wonderfully entertaining show, I believe. Um, but it also is a show that uh, cares about the things that I care about deeply. It wants to have a real conversation about communities and gentrification and the ideas around community policing, um, mm. but in the funniest, most surprising way possible. Uh, the challenges for us continue to be that, I think to tell these stories that we're, we're really invested in, we need great partners. Uh, and, and one of the things that we continue to seek out are, are those partners who are the Hari Kandabalus, the Michelle Armours, the Gerard Milligans, and Shatane Bowens, the Michael Torpies of the world, who best enable us to bring out really exciting new works, uh, to uh, speak to the things that we care about most, and also make people laugh. Uh, so much of what we do is rooted in comedy. I like to believe that we develop um, work that is both really funny and really heartfelt. They're, they're, our work is oftentimes earnest, but it makes you laugh first. Um, I thought the real joy of a show like Paid Off was you would spend 22 minutes laughing um, through this comedy game show, and then you'd spend a minute crying when somebody paid off 
in 60 seconds, $100,000 of student loan debt. Oh my God, that's you know? amazing. And having that experience and as a producer was transformative for me. Oh, I was just going to say, like, I believe nothing opens people's minds more than laughter. Um, it just kind of creates this little like chink in the wall where you can kind of get in there and really kind of shift people's opinions and, yeah. and hearts, I guess. I think it's a beautiful thing. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful. And whether it's laughter, whether it's, you know, being able to shock and amaze people, um, I want to create content that is compelling and sticky. And once we get you watching, you have to stay watching, you know, mm -hmm. and the next challenge is just how to get better and better and better at that. You know, as I said, I'd, I'd be the first to admit that um, my first feature was good, but it could have been better. And I'm really proud of the television we've made to date as a company and the projects that I've taken on. Um, but I'm now looking to see how we get even better how we, we continue to refine what we do at a higher and higher and higher level um, and how we continue to challenge ourselves to tell different kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. mm. So if I encounter a comedian who has a great social justice lens, I should send them to you? Uh, yeah, and I think the thing is, you know, we're big believers in hiding the broccoli, right? Um, which is to say, uh, we we always want our content to be entertainment forward. So the, I think the question is, yeah, like what's their filter? What is, what is the thing that allows this individual or these individuals to say something that needs to be heard, but in a way that makes it accessible to hear it? You know, um, audiences don't want to be lectured, you know, and, and some people are just so good at this. Kamau Bell, is so great at this, at, at finding ways that are empathetic and accessible towards having rigorous and difficult conversations on questions of race and systemic inequality. Um, Baratunde Thurston, who we're working with right now on a, a project in development, um, also just exemplary at speaking on um, the complexities of, of modern America on everything from governance and citizenship to technology to questions of, of systemic inequity and race. Um, you know, Baratunde has such a gift for um, telling stories that allow us to hear him, you know, and so it really just becomes a question of not just what is the message, but who is the messenger and why will people receive the messenger? Okay, I want to ask about like what advice you have for people who might be just starting out. I think people who are listening to my podcast are, um, they kind many of them I think want to pivot into a film career or they've like long aspired to, um, but maybe haven't taken the leap yet. So I'm curious what advice you would have for somebody like that. Uh, I think one of the first things I would say is that um, people often are dissuaded from careers in the arts as I was because it's believed that the path towards a career in the arts is narrow, you know, and, and it's true, right? It is hard. It is really hard to be an actor, you know, uh, it is really hard to attain success as a writer or as a director. There are a few slots, there are a few spaces uh, and um and it takes a lot of work in addition to a lot of talent to solidify and achieve and attain one of those spaces. But what people think is that there's some sort of straight line to this career. You know, you're gonna to go to school, you're going to 
learn your craft, you're going to go out and start auditioning and you're just going to book the work. Right. And it doesn't work like that. Um, and thankfully, uh, even though it doesn't work like that, um, the industry is not built like that either. I don't think it's a coincidence that I worked in a talent agency, that I worked in a nonprofit theater, that I worked in the trenches of indie film and wore a lot of different hats there, that I participated in um, an accelerator program for entrepreneurial artists in my mid thirties. I tried a lot of hats and a lot of dis different disciplines to learn how to do what I do now so well. You know, I did not enter film school thinking, well, one day I'm going to be a television executive who produces and directs. I was like, I'm going to go to, to school and I'm going to be an indie filmmaker. I'm going to be the next Quentin. I'm going to be the next P.T. Anderson. I'm going to be the next Robert Altman. And, you know, um, I still maybe, right? I'm not done directing. Uh, Apu is not going to be uh, my last work, although I'm really proud that I've made a work that has obviously insinuated itself into the culture in such deep ways. And if, if I had to stop directing there, I would, but I love directing. I'm going to continue to do it. Um, but I would have never gotten to direct that work if I hadn't also tried and done so many different things along the way. I would not have been able to build a successful department um, in my company selling film and television if I hadn't taken stops off at places like uh, Innovative Artists, a talent agency where I really learned about the day-to-day -day challenges of being um, an artist out in the world, an actor out in the world auditioning, but also being the producers and casting directors uh, and directors and assistant directors, all of the different pieces of talent at every step of the rung of the filmmaking process who contribute to getting a piece of work made and having to interact with all of those people on the phones, having to sit and pour over contracts, talking to lawyers, talking to other managers and agents. Uh, it really helped seed me in the industry. Uh, working at the public theater taught me how to speak eloquently and convincingly about art that I thought was worth financing. Uh, that was really critical, uh, both in terms of my skills as a pitch person and as somebody who raised money uh, for individual features. I would have never grown to be able to have the conversations that I have now with the directors that I produce for if I hadn't directed myself. And also if I hadn't worked with great producers who showed me the way. And so, and, and so I have really been the beneficiary of, of every sort of step along the way that I've taken, right? And so your path towards being a director or an actor or producer may not traverse a straight line. It rarely does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there are, the key I think to entering our industry is going in through whichever door opens and then you know working your way uh, through whatever doors follow. You know, look for the open doors. That's okay. That's so funny you say that because have you heard this concept of the third door? No. Okay. So there's this, this concept where the metaphor is you're in line at a nightclub. Um, it's this very exclusive nightclub. And so you're standing in line. And so that's one way to get in, right? You're like, just wait, 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 you know, it takes a long time. So it's kind of a metaphor for a somewhat exclusive industry. Um, and then there's the people who get to skip the line because they're friends with the owner or something like that. So they've got a connection. Um, and then there's this idea of the third door. Like there's always a third door in somewhere. Maybe it's the back door. Maybe you're climbing through the bathroom window, but it's like find a way of like entering by like a, a different route. And I think what uh, part of the idea is the scary part 
is to be the one to step out of the line and try something different. And it sounds like you kind of have taken the third door at various times. Like you've gone about it different ways. Yeah, I've, I, I have. And, you know, it's frustrating and challenging at times. You know, there were so many, there were doors that I also said no to. You know, I remember making my first feature and, and when flop, I had a friend who said to me, you know, there's an opening going to work for Joel and Ethan Cohen. And do you, I can put in a good word for you to, for, to go, you know, interview for the assistant job. And it just felt like to me, like, I don't want to go through that door. I don't want to be somebody's assistant. It was a mistake. You know, it was a mistake. And sometimes I really? was, oh, absolutely. I mean. To not do it? Yeah. I would have learned yeah. so much from two of the best filmmakers in the world. I would have interacted with the people that they interacted with. Um, uh, and, and, you know, but it to me felt like a step backwards at the time. And that was, that's the kind of third door that I absolutely should have gone to. At the same time, I have a lot of friends who were like, move to LA, move to LA. The whole industry is in LA. And I watched as they would move one by one and a lot of them would succeed and some of them wouldn't. But I was convinced that moving to LA would not make it easier to tell the stories that I thought were important to tell. And I still believe that. And so that's, a, that's, the, that's the door that I opted not to go through that I still feel pretty sure that I made the right decision about. Um, it, you, you don't know. You don't know. I try not to now look back at too many things and, and ask what if because you know, what I did do yielded some wonderful results, as it mm -hmm. were. Um, but, you know, what I would say is the biggest mistakes that I have made have been not being open-minded uh, about their doors, about really critical feedback. Um, a, a skill that I continue to work on as an artist is learning how to say maybe. Mm. A lot of people say yes, say, just say yes. And you're saying, say maybe. <laughs> maybe, give yourself the time to really think about what somebody's oh. asking you for or proposing to you. I love uh, that. You know, as, as a producer, I think it's really, really important to hear people. It doesn't mean you always have to say yes, but you have to signal that you hear them and you understand their concerns and whether what they're proposing is the right path, whether what they're proposing is the wrong path, but highlights another issue that you didn't see, whether what they're highlighting is the wrong path, but you need to just communicate to them that they're being heard and you understand why they're being heard. Like all of those things matter. And, and to be able to, to do that and reflect on that properly, you have to be able to say maybe. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Like taking your time with decisions rather than feeling pressured to like have an answer in the moment too. I think yeah. that, that's a I'm the first to admit when I don't know a thing, you know, I try <laughs> to work with people who know more than me. I try to work with people who are better at their jobs than me. I try to learn from those people and then I try to keep hiring them. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, what do you think, I'm so curious, like what do you think sets someone apart who um, is able to like do the thing, like create, create the film that they have wanted to create versus um, someone who uh, maybe like loses steam along the way? There is a rigor to this. Mm -hmm. It is tremendously hard work. And I work doggedly at what I do. The people that I know who are successful work doggedly at what they do. And we all have different ways of not taking no for an answer. Mm. 
Now, I think there's a lot of different ways to do that, you know, because I think there's ways of, of not taking no for an answer and continuing to be kind and thoughtful and respectful of, of why somebody's telling you no or people's boundaries. Uh, but I think um, other people would have made a first film like I did and it would have gone away the way that mine did. And they would have said, well, that's it. And they would have walked away from the industry. And again, I understand my privilege in, in, in being able to continue to say, I'm gonna keep trying this. I knew that I would never be financially destitute, you know, that I always had a safety net. I could go back to school and learn a new trade if I needed to, you know, and I certainly had my moments of thinking about it. I, I, I had success really at 37, you know, um, for the first time in this career. And I was on my way out the door. I was very much thinking about like, well, maybe it's time to go back and get um, that master's degree in, in licensed clinical social work. Maybe it is time to go be a teacher. Maybe, maybe there were a lot of things I would have been good at. I would have been a great lawyer. Um, and there were a lot of times in my 30s where I would think, you know, uh, if my father had never discouraged me at that L.A. Hilton, maybe I would have given up this dream on my own. Right. Maybe I, somewhere along the way at 14 or 15, I would have been like, you know what, it would be better to just go and be, to be that lawyer, to be that therapist. But um, I've always been a person that operates with a kind of chip on their shoulder when it comes to this kind of stuff. And that's the kind of doggedness that I'm talking about. There was, a, if you're going to tell me that I can't do something, I will bend over backwards to show you that I can. Oh, so it's um, kind of a gift that your dad told you this. <laughs> no way. In a way, you know, um, although it's easier to say that now from the vantage point of where I sit in my career than, than maybe seven years ago. Mm. All of that being said, um, I, I, I do think that, that there is a doggedness and it is born out of, among other things, an inflated self-confidence. You know, you have to, on some level, believe that the thing that you want to do, that the thing that you want to say is just so important that it must get out there no matter what. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it never, it never stops feeling great when people validate a project and allow you to make it when you get permission, you know, to go through the door and make the next thing. It never hurt, stops hurting when people don't buy projects that you love. You know, like, I, you know, I develop many projects a year and only a small handful of them go out into the world and actually make their way onto your television screen or into your uh, Netflix account. Um, and, but, you know, after every one that doesn't sell, I pick myself up, I dust myself off and I try and figure out how to go out and do it again and do it better or do it differently or, or do it smarter or how to position it better. You know, because the things that I care about telling stories about the issues that matter most to me, they're not going anywhere. Uh, we have a long way to go as a culture, as a society to create a more equitable world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So true. <laughs> so true. Okay. I know we're, we've only got a couple minutes left here. So I, I want to, well, actually I want to ask, do you still want to be an actor? I don't, but I did appear uh, in a movie a few years ago. I actually oh. co-starred in a movie that I produced called Flames uh, mm -hmm. that went to the Tribeca Film Festival, was co-directed by uh, Josephine Decker and Zephyr Thrill, uh, was a meta-doc, as it were, so I'm playing myself in the film. Um, and it's a really, really beautiful and vibrant film that is about... Um, about the chaos of thwarted love, as it were. It's about a couple who has a whirlwind 
real life romance uh, for six months uh, and then spend the next five years of their lives trying to piece together what went wrong uh, by reinvestigating and recreating moments from their relationship together. <laughs> and, uh, so I produce the film and also play myself as Michael Milanidoff, the producer in the film. That's um, amazing. <laughs> and uh, it was a real pleasure to, to do this thing. I'll also tell you that there are some scenes on the editing room floor of the problem with Apu where I also play myself. So that might be, that might be my lane, might be periodic <laughs> appearances as myself. Found a perfect niche. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, so I think last but not least, where can listeners find you and support you? Um, you can, uh, follow, uh, the Instagram account for my company, Cowboy Bear Ninja, which is mm-hmm. hashtag Cowboy Bear Ninja or at Cowboy Bear Ninja. Uh, you can find my Twitter, uh, Malamadoff Films. Uh, you can follow me there as well. Um, I keep my Instagram private because it's a lot of pictures of my kids and there are just things that are better kept to myself. Um, and you can continue to look out uh, for my work. Uh, I know that The Problem with Apu is currently available on HBO Max for streaming. So uh, you can check that out there. Uh, Flames is available for purchase uh, on iTunes. It's really wonderful. Um, if you want to watch a really searing, sexy meta documentary, a lot of, a lot of, uh, NC-17 stuff in there, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, but it's also, <laughs> uh, bravura work of filmmaking, um, from Josephine and Zephyr. I believe that's available on Voodoo now, as well as iTunes. Amazing. Well, thank you, Michael, so much for being here. It's been such a delight to have you on the podcast and, Um, I so much appreciate your wisdom and you sharing your experiences with, with us. It's amazing. So um, I just appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a really uh, a pleasure being here and I hope some of what I had to sell today proves to be helpful. And um, if you were a fruit, what fruit would you be? Oh, I'd probably uh, be a banana. It's, Mm. it's, it's sturdy. It's curvy um you know it, it it's it's truly fluid in all the best ways you unpeel it and there's a wonder inside <laughs> all right <laughs> all right and and podcast <laughs> all right y'all that was awesome i had a lot of fun interviewing michael uh thank you again so much for coming on the podcast here are three major takeaways one Consider what promise your story makes to the audience. Two, look for the open doors and go in through whatever door opens. And three, approach your work with doggedness. You have to believe that what you want to say is so important that it must get out there. All right, that's been Spark to Screen. I hope you guys have an amazing day. Sending love. Bye. Thank you so much to my producer, Adam Filipowicz. If you want to get more involved with Spark to Screen, you can follow me at emma.abridged on Instagram, or you can join the Facebook group Spark to Screen to get support from other filmmakers and myself. All right, thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Bye.